Welcome to the MedTech Talent Lab, the number one catalyst for advancing careers and building high-performance teams. Sponsored by the Anthony Michael Group, helping companies secure in-demand talent in regulatory affairs, quality, clinical, engineering, R&D, and other areas for medical device, digital health, diagnostics, and other organizations across the U.S. life sciences sector. Here's your host, Mitch Robbins. Hey, welcome back to another episode here on the MedTech Talent Lab podcast. I'm your host, Mitch Robbins, and I am the founder and managing director here at a organization called the Anthony Michael Group. We help companies across uh, the MedTech space, so medical device organizations, digital health, diagnostics companies, to build best-in-class technical teams, areas like regulatory affairs, quality, engineering, et cetera. And so I am proud to be bringing to you best-in-class leaders on a regular basis on this show uh, to discuss all things talent-related, whether that's how uh, to enhance your own career or how to continue to build best-in-class, high-performing teams. Uh, joining me today is a gentleman that I am very appreciative uh, has decided to join us for the show. His name is uh, Paymon Montezemi, and he is the director of software engineering for a company called Dialyte. This guy, man, he is no stranger to formal education. Listen to his background. He has a master's degree from the University of Brussels in electrical, uh, mechanic, electromechanical engineering. He has a master's degree in mechanical and aerospace engineering from the University of Virginia. He has a master's degree from USC in biomedical engineering, and currently he's working on his executive MBA from UC Irvine. Uh, he spent the last 20 plus years working for a, a variety of medical device organizations like Advanced Bionics and Smith and Nephew, as well as a variety of others. And today, as I mentioned, he's the director of software engineering for Dialyte, where he re he's responsible for building, training, and leading a brand new team from the ground up. Now, Dialyte, for those of you unfamiliar with the company, it's a privately held Series uh, B stage medical device organization with a mission to develop solutions that help improve the care and lives of patients with kidney disease. The company's vision is a future where its technology enables all patients and partners to control kidney disease. So without further ado, Paymon, welcome to the show, man. Thanks so much for being here. Good morning to you, Mitch, and happy Friday. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, I really, really appreciate it. And, um, you know, I'm excited that you're here for a couple reasons. Um, first of all, I, you should be so proud of yourself for the, what you've done over the years to continue to develop yourself personally and professionally. I mentioned your formal education and the years of experience that you have in the space. We're going to get into, you know, some of the decisions you've made and why you've done that. But really, the theme for today's show is discussing rapid growth and how simultaneously when a company is growing, uh, what that means as far as the necessity for professionals within the organization to continue to stretch and grow themselves personally. Um, uh, and so regardless of the function, I think everybody, whether you're a staff member or you're a leader, as a company is scaling, growing at such a rapid pace like Dialyte, it obviously forces you to continue to run into new trials and tribulations, new experiences as a professional, which leads to what are you going to do to obviously keep up and develop yourself? And so um, when you and I were talking offline, I thought you had a really great way of discussing this and kind of the different phases companies and, and professionals go through. And to use your term, you said layers. But before we get into the layers, I want to ask you this question because it's burning on my end. 
how does a guy decide to go get three master's degrees, not only three master's degrees, but in very technical um, uh, spaces? Tell us more about that, how you chose to do that over the years. Sure. Um, the, the the reason for the two first ones is that I was uh, <clears throat> an honorary student, you know, part of University of Brussels. So I grew up in, in Belgium and uh, I was born in Iran, Tehran, and then I came to Belgium when I was nine. And uh, part of the polytechnic school, there was an opportunity to do a double master's uh, that was instead of two years, it, uh, four years, it would be three years. And um, I was part of a cohort of 130 students. There were two of us who were selected to come to the United States uh, in this exchange program. And uh, so the, the funding that was actually available was part of the mechanical and aerospace department uh, at you know University of Virginia in Charlottesville, Virginia, a beautiful place, by the way. And um, so at that point, you know, after I, I did the, the, the three years, I obtained a double master's. So I defended the thesis that I had back in Virginia. And went back back to Belgium and defended the second one, and that's how I obtained the two. Now, the reason why you know why mechanical and aerospace and different from the electromechanical is because my uncle was actually a consultant for NASA and for 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 the defense industry, and um, he was in aerospace, and then aerospace was booming at the time, and of course. Um, the, I had high interest in doing that. After you know, uh, uh, two thousand one and nine eleven. What happened is that um, a lot of uh, things, and because I was a student that was foreign, et cetera, there was a lot of restrictions on being able to enter the aerospace and defense you know, industries, et cetera. And I looked at my background and I kind of optimized myself. I said, listen, uh, these, there were some classes of biomechanics that I took, uh, you know, human body and how the human body works, et cetera, but they were really uh, studying of the properties and mechanical properties. There was no movement, there was no controls, there was no electrical whatsoever involved. And I had a degree in electromechanical that was like just sitting in the back burner and doing nothing with it. And then so I said, you know, why don't we combine these and try to find a field in which, you know, all these you know, are combined. And what I found as a field is biomedical engineering, where we focus not only on the musculoskeletal, you know, structure of the human body, but also their signals and we control them. And so I entered the field of bionics and, or, or yes, exactly. So it's called bionics and, um, and, uh, started my, my third, third master's, you know, at, uh, USC and, um, my, uh, the professor or advisor was actually the inventor of the bionic nerve. And so that's where I started learning about, you know, uh, you know, med medical devices, doing research and, and, and getting a structure around, you know, how to do research and research methodologies how to write, you know, articles, how to write papers and things like that. And uh, that's where, you know, my career kind of hits it off. You know, it was really very much, you know, R&D based at the beginning. And then I started joining companies afterwards. I'm always interested to learn how people got onto the initial part of their career journey, you know, in this space. And so it sounds like had it been a different time, you probably would have potentially ended up in aerospace engineering. Correct. Yeah, that's crazy. It's crazy. Well, obviously uh, meant to be. So let's, you know, I know you're pursuing your executive MBA now, and I'm going to save that for a little bit later in the show and ask some questions about that. But let's dig in, if you would. I mentioned earlier on the idea of a company and a professional almost scaling in parallel to each other, right? As far as the knowledge, the development of the professional, as well as the scale of the organization. Would you go ahead and, and uh, help us dive in and talk about the different layers that you, you and I were discussing offline and what that means? Sure. I mean, um, it, it always starts, you know, from, from 
leadership, right? So from from a leadership perspective, you have the executive layer, you know, uh, at the top, and where we we say, okay, what is the vision and the mission of the company that we we want to we want to build, you know, from from the ground up. And once that mission and vision, you know, is established, then comes next, of course, uh, the type of culture that we would like to have. And of course, now there's a lot of companies that, and, and a lot of, you know, great people on culture and who are highly educated on that, that, you know, concluded that culture is actually one of the most important activities and that are very dear to all the employees. And uh, of course, there, there, there are better cultures than others that are proven by experience and some of the ones being a culture of, of commitment and accountability, but also empowerment because those two, you know, can work hand in hand uh, with empowerment on the side. You cannot, you know, hold people accountable if you don't empower them. So that's one piece of it. And then, of course, there's other pieces where, you know, the culture has to be constructive. It has to be non-punitive. It has to be, you know, um, dynamic. It has to be responsive. It has to be, you know... Uh, quick, uh, depending uh, on the type of industry. Uh, for us, quick is important because, you know, of course, we're uh, a startup company, but also very efficient. It's not just being quick for the sake of it. So that is the, the really the structure of the company and without even talking about IT, you know, building facilities and whatnot. Really, the, the, the things that are intangible and, and you can just talk about them, what is the feeling when you enter and look at the logo of the company and you open the door of the company, you enter from the decor that is in the background and whatnot. So once those layers, you know, are established, then of course, now you know, come, come the facilities, the infrastructure, the, the, the IT infrastructure and, and uh, putting things in place and compliance from an HR perspective, let's say to the state of California. And now it's time to start hiring in a very, you know, uh, uh, rapid pace the initial team that is going to come and start working on the infrastructure that is needed from a documentation perspective for the type of industry. Of course, the next layer is for us, of course, uh, being compliant to the FDA government agency because, you know, medical devices in this specific case, you know, a, a dialysis machine is a class two medical device. So there's a lot of restrictions and a lot of due diligence that needs to go around that. And there's a lot of testing, a lot of verification and validation. And of course, a lot of design documents and testing documents that we need to submit part of an exercise called a 510K submission, which is the form that you file you know, in order to register the device, but also have them take a look and accept and approve uh, this basically device to hit the market, which is uh, also, as you may imagine, from an investor perspective, it is a huge milestone for a company that we're actually currently working towards. Um, Aspects of regulatory is coming play. You need to have regulatory people who are very familiar with the, with that space, and so that they have you know they have interface with the FCA government agency before, so that there are no surprises. We want to make sure that you plan this accordingly. So then comes the plan and say, okay, what are we going to do? And uh, once we have that plan in place, we need a project management methodology. And once we have the project management methodology in place, then we know how many features this machine entails and uh, what are the things it needs to have and what are the features based on competitive analysis, talking to marketing and whatnot, and, and really the CTO and the, and the, and the marketing folks you know, talking to each other. And the medical staff, uh, in, in this case, you know, the LIT CEO is um, a nephrologist himself, Dr. Dr. Pawar. And so, of course, the right there, the knowledge is right there, and you can you know communicate and, and talk to between regulatory, clinical, chief technology officer, and and the rest of the engineers. 
and say, okay, these are the resources that we need in order to have these features built into the machine. And then once we have those, you know, those, those, those definitions, then we say, how many of them do we need based on the project plan and the project management methodology? And at that point, you know, we start the hiring process of writing the job descriptions, you know, interviews and whatnot, et cetera, and then bring these folks, you know, on, under the same roof. Then, then, of course, the next thing is, of course, training them on the mission, vision, and culture of the company, training them on infrastructure, training on IT systems. And then the next thing that comes is training them on um, the project process or the project management process or methodology that we use at, at Dality for the long, you know, uh, long-term uh, goals, mid to long-term goals, we use, you know, Microsoft Project for with a master Gantt chart. And of course, I'm also a certified Scrum master. Uh, we, you, you talked about certificates. That was a certificate that came extremely handy because at the at the day-to-day and a routine and in, in two-week blocks of work, we're actually using the Agile Scrum methodology and that we also validated using various software uh, Etc. and train the staff on. And then now you have a, a staff that is trained, you know, in, in processes that is trained in, 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 in day-to-day operations. And then, of course, comes the technical layer where uh, we, need to have, we need to have technical discussions and say, okay, what is the architecture of the system? What are the requirements even before even we get that? Once we have the requirements, then we can start, you know, building these various documents and we document everything and then start hitting and creating uh, the device itself piece by piece and putting it together. So hopefully I have depicted some of the most important layers there. Yeah, and and so I want to almost chunk up what you said, because if I'm hearing you correctly, in essence, what you're describing is two primary layers, which is the strategy, right? And then the logistics. Yes. And the strategy obviously starts at the top and very early on, what is the vision? How does the organization feel when you walk in through those doors? What do we stand for? What are we going to put up with? And what are we not going to put up with? Mm-hmm. Right. And I think, and then the logistics is, okay, how do we execute against that vision and what we're ultimately trying to, to accomplish here? Whether that's, you know, the hardware software components, dealing with biocompatibility, the regulatory submissions, et cetera, et cetera, project management. But I think there's got to be such a challenge when you start off with a vision and you, as a, a team, as an executive group, have an idea of what the vision is and what you expect and what you what um, culture you want to type try and enforce, and then you start bringing more people into the company. How to maintain that initial vision or that initial culture and not lose sight of what you set out to do or or set what the type of organization you set out to be, and not let it go astray from the different types of people that you bring in. Would you agree? Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I agree. I mean, there is. Um, of course, it comes from 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 the way you want to manage the company. If you want to, you know, be a micromanager, you're gonna to have to exercise all your your force and energy and everything in just managing that team on a day to day, and they're not gonna like it either. A lot of people, you know, don't don't like being micromanaged. Uh, there are certain activities that are highly sensitive that you want to monitor closely, but essentially, I personally don't like followers. I love to create leaders. Uh, and and the way you do that is that you have to empower them and trust them that they will do the right thing, but also train them and provide them all the resources that are necessary to make those daily day-to-day decisions. So, and of course, process comes a lot into play and training comes in a lot into play because once you have a process 
and you train your staff regularly. It's not like you train them once because that's going to die down and we're going to start deviating because, you know, let's say the world of R&D can be quite chaotic, specifically at the beginning, the first one to two years can be quite chaotic. And, and, and those challenges, the first thing that people tend to do is to abandon process, which is the worst thing, right? So you always want to stick to process because that's what can save you. Uh, so that's where those, those reflexes need to be built into the, to the team, into their, you know, the thinking and mindset. And so therefore, to do that, there needs to be reinforcement of those trainings and reminders of what our process is. And it always helps even yourself because as you're describing, say, hey, you know, there's actually an improvement we could do because this step is unnecessary or is redundant or whatever it is, or it's not efficient. Let's make it more efficient. And of course, you collaborate with the team by receiving their inputs actually to reach these, you know, micro or mini, you know, uh, improvement processes. Absolutely. And I'm going to flip uh, flip the script, so to speak, in a minute as far as talking about how does this translate to a professional co- having to develop fast while the company's developing fast. Sure. But I want to ask you about this. I want to ask you about resources. You know, I think that there's this constant internal discussion with organizations about what do we bring in uh, internally as far as how do we bring in resources internally in our company mm-hmm. versus what do we contract out? And how do we make those decisions as far as what should be contracted out, not only from a budget standpoint, but as far as a human capital standpoint, yeah, right? Yes. What's your thought on that? You know, you're in the thick of, of scaling a company. What's your take on, you know, thinking that through and making those decisions? Sure. That's actually an excellent question. So um, the, the, the fact is that there are some technologies that are at the heart of the device itself, like, for instance, the firmware. For instance, the FPGA, which is logic, you know, and logic control. The, there is um, some portions of, of course, of the electronics and that are doing very, very specific things to reality that are, you know, later on, of course, are going to become the IP, if not already, or intellectual property of the company. Those sensitive activities, uh, my trend has always been to have them done in-house because they're the heart of the, the intellectual property and the, uh, or sometimes, you know, the trade secrets of that company. Once you start building outside, I mean, in our case, you know, we have the graphical user interface and we, we, that is also a very sensitive portion of the system. And so that is also done in-house. Once you get to testing or verification, we have some core anchoring, you know, team members who are there, who are representative of those functions. And who are doing that specific type of work, but those are a lot easier to expand and and to basically create more bandwidth for the companies. For let's say, if we're doing development testing, we have some skeleton of the work already done. You know, we're following the the standards. Uh, you know, of 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 medical device software. Let's say in this case, you know, that we're developing against. And then what happens is that for gaining speed, then we can start looking at these various pieces and what kind of entities or what kind of third party you know vendors can we start getting involved with to accelerate those, you know, anchoring, you know, critical team members. Let's say development testing, we could have something that is outsourced, but of course it would take some bandwidth of us away, but at the beginning specifically to ramp up and for them to understand the project. But then in the, in the mid to long term, of course we would gain, you know, I don't know, three months of work, let's say for development testing, or we would gain uh, or shorten, you know, the time for verification and validation by bringing four, let's say contractors, short term, short term, you know, contractors that come in that have done that in the past. We have maybe done, you know, work with them or they come from a, from a house where they make a lot of these, this type of work. And we have worked with them in the past. 
uh, and we bring them in and all we do is that we explain them the work and they're more on the execution side rather than you know creating the infrastructure and creating all the scripts and creating you know all the tests that need to be done they can add additional tests but at least the basic bulk of all these tests or the development tests or verification tests have already been written by internal members we just need more bandwidth to accelerate time to market which is of course the most important thing you know for uh, for a uh, a startup like ours, but without com- compromising quality, because quality is the number one thing in a company. I love that. So basically, they, you know, your philosophy is, hey, what's what are potential things that have to do with our trade secrets or the criticality of our product? Do our very best to keep that in-house. How, what are the other projects that we can help uh, accelerate our speed to market by outsourcing? that would be done way faster with the help of a, a group out, outside and simultaneously work sure, together sure, on that sure. um, without, you know, at every stage, obviously, um, affecting quality. Makes sense. Yeah, and there's la- the last piece of that is that, you know, you can, you can also hire your internal resources, but there's always some, some ramp up to do. And typically right. for a cluster of team, if you're more than three or four, then you start actually losing efficiency because you lose communications. It is hard to manage them and whatnot. And so we need to have these clusters of, you know, three to four per, you know, stack, as we call them, or technology stack. And anything more than that, there's a book actually called The Critical Man Month that actually explains that, you know, you adding more resources is actually not a, uh, a, a very smart thing to do. And you start on the back end, you start hiring five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten people part of the same same cluster of mini team and you're not going to see the efficiencies that are, efficiencies are actually going down. I want to uh, make sure to repeat the name of the book. Did you say Critical Mammoth? Yeah, Critical Man Month. Oh, man. Oh, interesting. There you have it, folks. Check out that book. It sounds like it could be uh, beneficial for sure. Sure. Let's talk about the personal side of this. You know, the first example that comes to mind is founders. Founders, you know, there's so many examples of a founder being able to take the, a vision, an idea, start executing, build the company to a certain point, and then they bring in a CEO who can help take it to the next level, right? Because the founder just doesn't have that experience or the founder doesn't want to be that hands-on, whatever it may be, right? But more often than not, it's because of the, the experience to take it to the next level. I can imagine that in technical functions and a variety of functions for that matter, that the same thing happens. You've got a software engineering uh, uh, leader who is used to you know, the very technical piece has some leadership skills, but then also in the company just starts to just catch wildfire. And also now what was the necessary skill set is drastically different as far as how to lead the team, right? Correct. Talk, if you would, about your own, A, your own personal experience, and then B, your opinion of how to keep up with, with that. And, you know, rather than just going to get a different job, if obviously the person is valued internally and the person loves to be there, how does the person keep up with what how the organization is changing? Yeah, so that's the, a, a very tough question, but also excellent question. So there is at the beginning a lot of uh, you know process and technicality that come into play because we're you know kind of building the plane while we're flying it, and 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 of course the infrastructure does around it. You know, um, as as our director of quality would say. Uh, you know, I'm building the airport, you guys are building the planes. And then so, you know, once that infrastructure is in place, then, of course, comes the execution of the technical work. But with that comes, of course, pressure, because do we have a timeline? You don't have infinite funding. It's like, you know, things are pressing and, and you know, you need to de-risk the, the biggest 
you know, riskiest items that are on your feature list. And of course, with pressure comes, you know, uh, can come frustration, can come, you know, miscommunications. You, uh, there's so many negative uh, aspects of a character of a human being that can come out out of that. And that's where, you know, where the exercise of culture, training on culture, tr- cultural building or team building exercises help a lot to create the trust among the various team members. So some of them may have never worked with each other in the past. And, and of course, clear lines of communications, open door policies, and making sure that everybody is breathing. If you don't breathe during this time and you put, you know, dive on the water and you just keep being on the water and keep going, there are two things that can happen. Of course, this can be a, a, a micro cracks and discords among the team that can happen without you noticing it. And the second thing is that the design can become only a technical work. And and what and I will I will really emphasize on what you just mentioned, where you know how do you balance the two? And the two are really the technicality and then the management, or or I would even say the leadership of it, because managing is just managing, leading is a complete different different thing. It takes it really to the next level, and and what happens there is that the the most of the managers that I've seen who have failed in the past is because they either just managed or they were highly technical but didn't have any leadership skills or very poor leadership skills. And then of course, me being an engineer per, per, per training, and yes, I took some, some, some classes as uh, back uh, you know, in 2008 at UCLA, um, Anderson Extension you know, in business and understanding how business works and marketing and this and that. But uh, I never focused, you know, laser focused on, on, on leadership skills uh, yes, you hear things and you see some stuff that worked for you and et cetera, but there was no formal training per se to say. And so I said, you know, what kind of justice I want to do to my people? What kind of justice I want to do to my own uh, career? And uh, am I able to, to to manage things where, you know, just being highly technical, am I being able to manage uh, the leadership aspect of things and also not fail because all I did was to focus on the technical stuff? So I actually force myself during the day to actually do non-technical work because that's your comfort zone. And so even if it's process, I do process. If it's quality work, I do I do some, some quality and with the quality control and quality assurance. If it is some HR challenges and looking at external versus internal, it is a training and, and, and walking. You know, what I do, for, for instance, every, every two weeks, I walk outside the building for half an hour with every single member of my team. And typically what I do, I underdress and, and become with a casual shirt on and with regular shoes. There's no dress up, you know, as a director and whatnot. And we go out there and we talk about everything and anything. It doesn't have to be reality. It can be just, you know, us. And that's a, that's a bonding exercise just to do what, just to get close to them and understand their problems. Because at the end of the day, you're here to serve. You're not here to only just manage and be a boss. And that part has made a difference in, in, uh, balancing, like you said, you know, the technical work versus the leadership work. I love it, man. There's so many things that you just said in there, and I want I want to try to unpack some of them because really good stuff. I love what you said about somebody who's come up in a technical environment, how that can be their comfort zone. And in times of stress, what do you what do we do? We seek comfort, right? And so it's natural to gravitate back towards what gives us comfort. In this case, the technical work but as a leader you're there to to inspire to motivate to give resources to your team to ensure 
that deadlines are met, but through the efforts of your team. You're there to guide the project, right? That's the goal. And I think a lot of times, especially in smaller organizations, leaders can have a tendency to want to jump in and help with the technical piece instead of identifying, oh man, you know what? This is this is kind of a um this is my sore spot. This is my weak spot is I really do need to figure out how do I get things done through other people in a little bit more efficient manner. Mm-hmm. And so I think it takes a lot of um Humility. I think it takes proactiveness. I think it takes motivation to want to get better instead of just saying, you know, this is who I am and this is how I lead. And people that want to work with me are going to work with me and people that don't, that don't. But you've got that extra gear. I call it the extra gear, right? You looked at this and you're like, no, I, I know I'm a technical person, but I also know that's what I tend to gravitate towards. And I want to continue to develop my leadership ability because that's who I am right now. And that's who I want to be, mm-hmm. right? Is continue to be the best leader I can be. Where does that come from? <laughs> so it comes from a place where you want to always challenge yourself and to improve constantly. The minute you, you let your ego, I like to, I like to see a balance of pride and ego. And, and, and at the beginning, you know, when you graduate, you come fresh out of school, you think you know everything in the world and you're the best in the world. And there's nobody else that can defeat you. And you come out there and and you start working with some engineers and you see, oh my goodness, they have like 20, 30 years of experience. And the the level of engineering that they do is like, you know, galactical versus compared, you know, to what you do. And that's where you start reflecting on yourself and you say, okay, well, maybe I don't know as much as I think I do. So the right balance, in my opinion, of of, uh, ego and pride is really to keep the ego at the lowest level. You need very, very, very small amount of ego, whereas pride is something you need to have a lot, in my opinion. And then so if you keep this balance always in that specific place, then what happens is that your brain becomes automatically curious at improving yourself and not taking things personally, but having really the professional part of you, the, the real human part of you really talking and also being open to criticism constructive criticism, hopefully, and, and really reflect on say, Hey, uh, and when, when you, when you hear it, you, you feel an ouch in your heart, that's the ego that is being hurt because you got a, a, a criticism, you know, or, or something critical against you. But what happens is that when you have pride and you keep the ego down, you actually open up to say, okay, what is, where is that, you know, criticism coming from? And then, so at that point, it is really up to you. The onus is on you to say, what am I going to do with that? Am I going to just, you know, sit down and say, okay, you know what? I'm done. Uh, you know, my career is done. I already know this. I can do that and probably I become a senior director, then vice president. And that's going to be the end of career for me. Or you can take the attitude of saying, no, I, whether I'm 60 years old, 70 years old, 80 years old, I still want to learn. I want to keep the ego down, keep that open, receive information and really challenge myself as the next level. Wherever I am in the or whenever or wherever I'm in my career, but take it to the next level. And become a better person, become a better leader, do better things, and be able to serve even better uh, at the maximum level of myself at all times. And by keeping that attitude, then you start seeing, okay, what is the next thing I can do uh, to uh, improve myself and come out of my comfort zone? Because I personally don't like comfort zone, and I always like to challenge myself. So funny, two of the things you just said. Um, my, I, my firstborn started kindergarten. Um, <laughs> And I, I put a post on LinkedIn just saying, hey, this was a bittersweet experience, but it was a reminder of a couple things. One, this has nothing to do with what we just said, but one was we can't stop time no matter how hard we try. Mm-hmm. Two, growth comes 
uh, outside of our comfort zone, both in life and in our careers, which is what you just said, that you don't want to be in your comfort zone. And the third thing was, is that if we want to be around others who are happy, motivated, inspired, people emulate our emotions, right? Especially as leaders, people emulate how we are on a daily basis. And so if we want to be around happy, motivated, inspired people, we have to constantly work on that ourselves and look ourselves in the mirror and say, are we putting that out into our environment, right? Um, So I just, I love it, man. I love what you said. One other thing I want to ask you about is you said ego versus pride, but you said we have to ask ourselves, where is that criticism coming from? Did you mean the come from place of the person that's giving the criticism? Yes. Meaning like, why are they giving it? What is the come from place that they're giving it? Is that? Exactly. So it could come. Yeah. So it could come from a jealousy place, and you have to be, you know, just, uh, you know, be able to detect that. It could come from just being someone who's trying to coach you, someone who's seeing your your blind spots. We all have blind spots, uh, without any exception. And and uh, you know, my interest, and I always say, you know, I love compliments. Sure, everybody loves compliments, but what I'm really interested in is that you know, you know, critical feedback from you with criticism to see or constructive criticism because I want to improve and fill in the gap on those weaknesses, and that's what we all do. The programs like executive MBAs, etc., you know, cover as well. Beautiful transition. I was just going to say, is this all for what we've talked about in the last few minutes as far as constant development, looking at where I'm at today, where I want to be, and what am I giving to my people as far as how much can I give? Is that where this, connecting the dots for you, but is that where the the idea of pursuing the executive MBA came from? Yes, exactly. Exactly. You reach a position in your, in your life, you say, okay, would you like to remain an engineer or, or, or you want to be a leader uh, who, is, who can help even more at the higher level of an organization, that company? And I saw myself up for the challenge, and and uh, it's a, it's a very humbling exercise as well because it's a, uh, you know they, they they give you a tough time in there, they and they make sure that, uh, you know UCI specifically is the number one executive program in Southern California. To get in is 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 very hard, but also they make sure that that number one is kept, and and the way they do that is that they keep pounding on you as hard as they can from all angles and challenge you. Uh, manage your time, manage your leadership skills, uh, manage your knowledge of, of business overall, global business uh, in, in general, and more specifically to, to healthcare in my case. And, and, and how to use and employ those skill sets you know, in the workplace is very, very important to, 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 to do, basically. So you're about a year into the program, is that right? Um, about a year, yes. So the graduation is uh, June of 2022. Okay. So, so so a year, 12 months in, or however long it's been, what are some of the pieces that you picked up from uh, the program a year in that have helped you most on the business front versus, you know, the technical piece? Yeah. So oh, to, to be open and honest in the most blunt fashion and, 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 you, you can imagine, I'm, you know, I'm director level. So, so part of the leadership team, but of course we have an executive leadership team too. And you can be in those sessions where, you know, it's really a decision you have to make whether you want to make that decision based on fear or not, or provide that feedback based on fear or not. And of course, there's some background to it. To myself, you know, I, uh, you know, I'm a, I, I'm a, I'm a one of the one of the children of war because back in 1979, when after the, the Iranian Revolution, uh, we had you know eight years of war between Iran and Iraq. And and so there was a lot of bombing. There was this and that. And and I'm actually a bombing survivor. And so um, what happens there is that you know you, you wake up in the in the night and you're 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 
launched like a rocket with your head against the wall in the middle of the night and you just you know wake up and you're still alive. And what that triggered in me is that I make best use of every second of my life because I took that, uh, you know, when I was nine years old as a second chance to, uh, at life. And I realized that when I was like maybe 40, 41 years old, that that behavior actually came from that. And so when you already have that background where you actually make the most out of every single second of your life, and you combine that with a, a more mature decision, I think I was like 42 years old when I made that decision, that I said, I will never make ever again a decision based on fear. And then so once, because, because fear is, is, is the last option and it smells like, like, a, like a rotten fish from a hundred miles away. And it is um, not inspiring by your team members and people feel it, that decisions are based, based on fear. And of course, it doesn't inspire trust in any company where that person is. So combining that with the leadership or executive leadership training that I'm going into is that I could be talking to any level in the company without any fear of retribution. Of course, part of it is, of course, part of the culture of reality in this specific case, where it's not, culture, a, I was gonna say, it's, yeah. it's not a punitive system. It is very much, you know, lessons learned and how to improve on and having vulnerable discussions and whatnot. But then the next thing is that I do actually have the guts to tell the truth to every single person in the company in different setups, whether it's an open meeting with everyone present or a one-on-one with the, with the chief executive officer of the company. And of course, you must have reasons that actually tell you why you would make those recommendations or why you would make certain comments. But I, I don't have a fear of, fear of retribution, and I'm certainly not afraid of providing very, very brutal and open and honest feedback to anyone in the world as, as we speak right now. And that's, you have to work on yourself to get there, and you also have to be able to absorb the feedback after you have provided, you know, such open and honest, you know, feedback. For sure. Thanks so much for sharing more of, of your upbringing. I think it, man, it's pretty powerful stuff, but it really puts this in more perspective. When I asked you a few minutes ago, where does this come from that, you know, the motivation, the desire to continue to improve yourself, to serve others even more, especially from a professional standpoint. And it obviously kind of brings more context to, to where this comes from for yourself, which is, uh, awesome. Listen, this has been amazing. It really has. I really, really appreciate you being here and all the nuggets that you've shared, a ton of nuggets today. I want to wrap up by asking you this. You know, Dialty, I know it's um, dialysis machine, but it also has an internet of medical things uh, connectivity um, component to it. What are you most excited about when it comes to the IOMT space and digital health in general? Sure. What I'm most excited about is, of course, the efficiencies that we can create. Uh, at the end, you know, we want to make sure that the patient has the support because in some cases they can do uh, what we call a solo treatment. So they're on their own at home. And you can imagine with needles, you know, in your arms and, and being by yourself, you need to make sure that the, the device is kind to you and is also very friendly to you. It doesn't have crazy alarms that are going to make you freak out and things like that. And, and so the machine is designed with those, you know, in, uh, intents in mind, but also a, a support group that is, you know, connected to the device and is that is monitoring to make sure that uh, it's like you could think of it like a virtual uh, nurse or something or a virtual, you know, uh, dialysis nurse that is there. And of course, there, there can be different escalation points where the doctor gets involved if, if you see something abnormal and whatnot. But you can imagine, any, you know, from the smallest to the biggest, you know, automation that you could do on that where alerts 
that are seen on the device are you know um, posted you know onto the dashboards of of reality and we could intervene on that but then that's on the patient side but we could also do the same thing on the device side so you can do predictive maintenance by you know understanding some modes of failures or some number of cycles let's say you have done 5000 cycles already on the machine it's time to change the filters or six months have already gone by you need to change the, the, some of the filters on the water side and water preparation side so these are things that can be predicted so that we reduce the downtime because this is a critical you know function of, of the body i mean you don't get it i mean you die so therefore we want to make sure that when you need to get dialysis the machine is prepped and then we make sure that predictively we send and dispatch you know a service person to your home or we send you a replacement unit and then that your unit comes to us and then we replace the filters or it goes to a center, we do that. And so that there's no downtime so that you can continuously, you know, get care and you're also being cared for. Yeah, it's just a, even, you know, just the small piece you shared of, of how it impacts the business that you're in. Um, but digital health in general is just exploding and the regulations are constantly changing and trying to keep up with the pace of technology. And it's it's amazing kind of where we're where we're headed with digital health and connectivity and all the things it can do for patients. So sure. Last bit I will add a bit the last bit I will add is the cybersecurity portion of it. Yes. Yeah. So the cybersecurity portion, of course, becomes critical and going through that exercise, of course, is mandatory. Uh, but also the way of doing it, it's, there's an art to it. So, uh, and of course, you, I piggyback on the fact that you could again use external versus internal and how much you know you want to do that to again accelerate time to market. So back to you, Mitch. Yeah, for sure. I was just going to say, again, I can't thank you enough for being here. It's people like you who are obviously adding value to the marketplace uh, and, and setting the right example as far as leadership and how to build best-in-class teams. So congrats to all your success um, career to date. Wishing you nothing but the best. And again, thanks so much for being here on the show today. Thank you, Mitch. And thank you so much for having me. And uh, this is wonderful you know, to be here and to be able to contribute. So we'll be in touch. Thanks for listening to the MedTech Talent Lab podcast. For more content-rich episodes, log on to theanthonymichaelgroup.com or subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform.